then you go back to your oncologist and you go back to your surgeon and they say, I can't tell you what to do, but you're still the one that has to make the decision no matter what. Genetics isn't always black and white, and the emotions and decisions surrounding genetic testing can be even more complex. Welcome to Patient Stories with Gray Genetics. I'm Eleanor Griffith, a certified genetic counselor and the founder of Gray Genetics, a telehealth genetic counseling and consulting service. It seems like there are constantly headlines in the news about genetics, but few news stories focus on the patient experience. At Gray Genetics, we are collecting patient stories, your stories, Every other Tuesday, we share an interview with a patient or a genetic counselor. Most women who want to get tested come up against a problem I did not come up against, which is that medical professionals don't take them seriously. If you keep telling women not to get tested through a doctor, they are going to do it themselves. Darlene Acuna is a 36-year-old freelance writer and journalism professor at the University of Florida. She is also the mother of two 10-year-old twin girls and carries a mutation in the BRCA1 gene. I initially came across Darlena's story because she wrote an article in the Washington Post regarding the difficulty of making a decision around a preventative mastectomy for someone who has a BRCA1 mutation. Darlena, thanks so much for talking with me. Thank you for having me. So to start with, a lot of our listeners are very familiar with BRCA mutations, I think, but others have absolutely no idea what a BRCA mutation is. So what does it mean to carry a BRCA mutation, and how did you learn that you had a BRCA mutation? So um, the BRCA mutation, a lot of people, one of the biggest mistakes I hear on the regular is that they say, oh, I have the BRCA gene. And that's not correct. You have a mutation in the gene, and it could be several, any number of them, even BRCA1, BRCA2, both of them carry multiple mutations that you could have within that um, area of your body. And um, what it means to carry one around, a mutation around, is that you have a very, a hyper-increased risk of cancer throughout your life. And depending on which one you carry, uh, you have more of a risk at a younger age or less. And I have BRCA1, which is, uh, means I have more of a risk of developing cancer um, in my, starting in my early 30s, honestly, and all the way up to end of life. So mm-hmm. I found out that I had this uh, mutation uh, because we have a very intense family history. And my mother used that to go ahead and get herself tested and found that she was BRCA positive, which caused a ripple effect throughout my entire family, not just her children, but her sisters and their children. And did your mom also have breast cancer? No, no, she did it uh, preventatively. She's one of four girls in her family and uh, two of her sisters have had uh, breast cancer and all four of them tested positive for BRCA1 mutation. Oh, wow. And how old was your mother when she was tested? In her 50s. So she made it. My grandmother and my grandmother's sisters uh, all had uh, breast cancer or issues in their late 30s and 40s. Um, And my mother had not had those issues, but she still got tested anyway. So in our family, cancer hits very young. Um, very young, and and we have, I've always thought it was really cool how BRCA works because up until we had this testing ability, you get old enough to have kids and pass it on, and then you die. 
you know? <laughs> so like my grandmother had breast cancer twice in like her late thirties and then in her early forties. And she eventually died of colon cancer. Um, and my aunt, my two aunts had uh, breast cancer, one in her fifties and one in her forties. My great aunts died, both of them. Well, several of them, two of them died. I have several, I don't know how many great aunts I have. We're a huge Catholic family. I mean, we're, we're probably holding up the BRCA statistic all by ourselves, honestly. Um, but, uh, two of them died in their thirties, like 36, like my age of breast cancer. And, uh, my cousin who's 32 was diagnosed with stage four breast cancer, uh, just a couple of years ago, um, from which she's now in remission, which is amazing. Um, and uh, my aunt, you know, who had breast cancer, went through all of that treatment, went through uh, chemotherapy, radiation, got everything taken out, got everything taken care of. She was great for a couple of months, went back in ovarian cancer. Like she just went through this. And now, I mean, an ovarian cancer, that's like, that's the real deal. You know, you can't, it's not like breast cancer um, in terms of being able to eradicate it and go into remission and live. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very few people end up surviving ovarian cancer, although some, some do usually detect it very late stage. Yeah, it's hard to detect it early. How did your mother tell you about her positive genetic testing results? How did she share that information with you and with other family members? Well, um, it, it's never easy. She was, she, we knew she was getting tested, and when her results came back, uh, she was emotional, not for herself because she already felt that she had lived, you know, a very good life and the, the surgeries or whatever that entailed weren't going to affect her too much because her family, her children bearing years were over and, you know, her, her premenopausal was no longer premenopausal. Like she was, she had had an entire life without having to deal with this knowledge. She was emotional more for my sister and I that we had to now get tested and that we might have to come up against um, this risk and make these decisions and it was really hard for her and she honestly she apologized um, mm -hmm. which is really heartbreaking because it's not something that you can help and yet I feel that if my kids test positive I also will apologize yeah yeah it's like we all pass things on to our children that are good or bad and we have no control over it but I think that's it's a very common feeling just to, to, to feel guilty or to feel just you feel awful. You hope your kids inherit the best from you. Exactly. And so you're 36. How old were you when you actually got testing done yourself? I was in my early 30s. I was 32 or 33. Uh, and I went and got tested as soon as my mother's results came back in because she was very adamant that I do it as soon as possible so that we have all the information at our fingertips and could make decisions from there. Um, and it was easy for me to get in, which isn't easy for many women. Um, it was easy for me to get that test and to get it passed through my insurance because my mother came back positive and because almost every woman in my family has some sort of breast cancer, ovarian cancer, colon cancer, some kind of history. Yeah. And you, you have one sister? I do. And she's negative. Okay. Did she, was she equally eager to get tested or no. did she have a different attitude? <laughs> she was not, but uh, she's very busy and um, her situation is different. So all of these factors play into whether or not you're going to get tested. And then when you are tested, whether or not you're going to have surgeries, the, it's so individualized. I had two daughters already, uh, I'm married, mm -hmm. have a uh, have family. 
Um, you know, and, and for me, it was important that I know because I needed to start making decisions. Now for my sister who is single and didn't have a family yet, you know, it, it, it's like, I mean, my family is stuck with me. You know what I mean? So knowing, <laughs> yeah. knowing whether or not I'm going to, you know, possibly, very possibly contract cancer at some point in my life is something that's like, well, now we know. Whereas my sister, if she gets tested, if she got tested and was positive, now she has to think of, is this something I bring up before I get right. married? You know? Um, uh -huh. So depending on when you're tested in your life, honestly, the people you tell and the effect that it has on your personal and social agenda are completely different. So I understood why she didn't have a fire under her bum to necessarily get that done. But she did eventually get it done and she did test negative and she's one of the few in our family to make it out. So I'm really excited for her. Yeah. And how did you get your testing done? Did you see a physician who ordered testing for you or did you see a genetic counselor? I went right to uh, Florida Cancer Specialist, which is uh, in my town of Gainesville. And uh, the doctor looked at my, because usually you have to go through a bunch of hoops, but uh, the doctor took a mm -hmm. look at my, my page, my family history, tossed it on the desk and said, take this woman's blood, um, <laughs> which was pretty funny. Um, interestingly, I had to bring my children with me. At the, at the time, my, my husband worked out of the home, and I was uh, a stay-at-home. I was still like a, a, a writer, but I, I wasn't as busy as I am now in terms of work. And so I was dragging two four-year-olds with me to get, and they had to watch me get my blood taken, and they <laughs> that impacted them. So, Yeah. Did the physician uh, mention the possibility of genetic counseling to you, um, especially once you were positive? Did they refer you or just like present that as an option that might be helpful? Yes, no, uh, you do have to get genetic counseling, um, or at least, it, I don't know if you have to, but it is very strongly advised and they do give you those counselors. Um, the counseling is, it's hard for counseling to be helpful because they don't, what are you counseling for? There's no resolution here. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? There's no end goal. I mean, there is, it's to be cancer free, but to get there, how you get there is so personalized that honestly, I feel like right now, at least the counselor's hands are almost tied in that they can't advise and women coming to them very, very much want advice and they're not yeah. allowed to give advice. So it's a very, it can be like a, a, a pretty stressful event for both parties, I think. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. Did you speak with a genetic counselor before you got your results back or after? I don't remember. I believe okay. after. Yeah, it, it really is true that so much, I mean, so much depends, like you said, on which, on, you know, which genes someone has a mutation in, but then also family history and the risks are really broad and there's different recommendations, but it's just guidelines and then genetic counselors don't give medical advice. Yeah. <laughs> so I know I always, you know, talk with patients about options and, you know, some patients have very strong feelings leaning one way or the other, some don't. And, uh, and then, but then it does go back to, you know, this is a discussion for you in a breast surgeon, or this is a discussion for you in a GYN oncologist in terms of timing of a lot of these right. things. Right. And a lot of it is, is, is hard because then you go back to your oncologist and you go back to your surgeon and they say, I can't tell you what to do, but <laughs> medically speaking, surgery would be a really good option for you. Right. And so then it's like, well, if you don't pick surgery, you're taking your life in your own hands. And if you do pick surgery, you're taking your life in your own hands and nobody 
is going to step up and take responsibility for your life. So you're still the one that has to make the decision no matter what. Yeah. And did you, um, did you have a breast surgeon talk to you about, uh, like screening options, like screening for a few years and then, and then surgery and like what those risks would be like and what the screening would look like? So yes. And I did choose to screen for a while. Uh, once I came back positive, I decided to screen, uh, I did a mammogram every, every year and an MRI every year, alternating six months. Um, and that was fine. It was completely covered by my insurance because it was preventative care. And I was like, yay, I'll just do this, you know, for 10 years, play the, I bet I don't get cancer game right now and then deal with it. Mm -hmm. Like put it on a shelf, which was great until one of my MRIs came back positive for something. And immediately, which at this part, I didn't understand well enough. Immediately the tests were no longer covered because it was no longer preventative. Now it was diagnostic. So not only am I dealing with, a, oh, yeah. crap, you might have cancer moment. I'm also dealing with, and now you got to pay for it, and all of the extra tests that we're going to do on you to make sure it is or isn't cancer. Now, I went through several biopsies, MRI biopsies, ultrasound biopsies, every kind you can imagine, because what they had found was an interductal platploma, which was benign. And because I have mm -hmm. a BRCA1 mutation, the doctors refused to believe that that's what it was. So they took test after right. test to make sure, and I get it. I'm Just so yeah, paranoid, they were like, right? It's, it's, it's not concordant with your history. What this should, and that was mm -hmm. the scariest year of my life because I kept coming back with, hey, you don't have cancer. And the doctor kept saying, hey, you probably do. So yeah. there I was just doing these tests, paying for these tests, and then by the time we figured out, okay, it actually is benign. The doctor's going to accept that it's benign. Then she's like, well, now let's take it out. And I'm like, you know what? Just take the whole thing. That was too much. Right. I don't want to ever go through mm -hmm. that again. And imagine if it actually was yeah. the big C. No thanks. Right. Right. So when did you actually have your mastectomy? I had it done in February. So the article is interesting because when you write for uh, – newspapers and here's something that you, you probably didn't expect on this podcast but i'm gonna give you a little intro into uh the news world uh -huh. <laughs> i wrote that article months before the surgery and then it went and then it came out and in then March. it came out in march <laughs> exactly right um and there are inconsistencies in it because it was written before as a matter of fact um i believe there's an area in it where i describe how you know you have to go through two surgeries one to take out mm -hmm. your original tissue and then you inflate and you expand and then another to, you know, put the um, fake boobs in. I, don't, I forget the technical term now that we're on the radio. Uh -huh. <laughs> but um, what, in, what happened with me actually is I was young enough and vital enough where at the, at the kind of the last minute, the plastics guy was like, hey, you want to sign this form? And, and if I can go in and do it all in one shot and just rip your muscles over the implants, you want to do it that way? And I was like, heck yes, I do. So I signed like that yeah. morning to let them do that if it was a possibility. And it was. So I only went through one surgery despite what that article says. And, and you, learned that, you learned that the day of surgery, that you could actually do it in one yeah, surgery? Yeah, so they had mentioned it very briefly in one of our pre-op sessions, but they didn't think it was going to be an option. So it wasn't really played upon. And then... They decided it was, and so that day, yeah, and I'm okay with that too. Like, 
I was prepared to go through the other way. And yeah, exactly. Surprise. I was like, well, yeah, yeah. I'm going to wake up and either it's going to be uh, Christmas boobies or, uh-huh. <laughs> you know, I have to go through what I assumed I was going to have to go through. Yeah. And I know in the article, um, I remember you talked a lot about just, you know, part of the decision being around taking time off work because you're an adjunct professor, right? And a freelance writer. So it's not like you can just not work and right. get paid. <laughs> Um, so what, how, how did, I mean, now I understand why you decided on the timing of the surgery, but how did that end up working out for you just in terms of how much time did you have to take off work and how, how, how did you deal well, with Well, I am, I didn't tell anybody at my university that this was happening to me um, because mm-hmm. I am afraid always that I am going to lose my job because of the mm. the economy we live in, because of the type of worker mm-hmm. that I am. And I don't want to give anyone any reason to think I might not right. be able to carry my workload. And I work a lot. The reason I can you know, survive is because of how very much I work. Adjuncts, as we well know, has been documented, don't get paid that well. Um, but I make up for right. that with the sheer amount of work that I do. And so I didn't tell anybody. And uh, when then when the article came out, you, the university saw it. Um, and they were flabbergasted. And I got stopped like all the time, like, oh my God, we had no idea. You should have said something. And I'm like, yeah, well, I'm still not, I still won't tell you if anything like that happens again. (laughs) But, um, but that was, it was really nice to actually have that support. Um, But I still went back to work. I skipped one, one. You skipped one class. So I, I teach, I teach mostly online. Um, So I got most of my stuff ready beforehand, but then there's one in-person class that I teach. um, And I had a friend, uh, not a friend, a a coworker teach one, one of them for me. And then we had uh, the break, the winter break. We had some kind of break. And uh, Mm -hmm. so I was able to miss two classes one somebody taught for me and one, we just didn't have class. And then I was back and I had to tell the students, because I looked, I, I went yeah. back with drains for weeks. I wore baggy sweaters yeah. and, you know, pencil pants and flats. And I had to say, look, I'm not feeling that well. I just had major surgery. And like, can you help me move the chairs? Can you this and that? And the students were great about it. I taught a lecture of about 300 students. Um, and they understood. They let me sit down and they like, they were very caring. So I was lucky because sometimes you don't get those breaks. Right. So that was your surgery was in February. Um, at what point do you feel now? What month are we in? <laughs> beginning, almost beginning of October, end of September. Um, like, how are you feeling now? And at what point did you did you feel like more like fully recovered from all of that? So recovery was tough, um, but it wasn't something I wasn't prepared for. I knew it was going to be horrible, and I was more frustrated. I'm still young enough and silly enough to where like I want to do everything immediately. So I was careful to not Mm -hmm. do that as much as I could and, you know, save up my energy for what I had to do. The recovery itself, it it did take, you know, a month to six weeks. Um, And I, you know, I wanted to go back to exercising was a big thing for me because I exercised quite a bit and I couldn't. Mm -hmm. Um, And I had to be very careful and I would go in. One of the biggest goals, and people don't 
see this very often is is those drains are so unwieldy and so gross and I just hate them and if you move too much and you're not letting yourself recover you're gonna keep draining forever so that was an issue with me I was trying to like get my drains to stop draining and I was moving too much for that to happen so I had to have those in for you know more than a month um, and when those were removed then I really felt like okay now I can recover <laughs> like now I can start but it was quite a while of my husband like picking my kids up from school and moving the like I would kick the laundry basket across the room to get to the washing machine because I, I couldn't carry it you know or I have a 15 pound dog and somebody else would have to put his leash on he's a little lap dog but I couldn't handle it and it was those kinds of things that really mm -hmm. let you know like hey you're not well yet right and so the with a BRCA mutation, then the second really major risk is is ovarian cancer. Um, so what have your conversations been like with doctors around um, you know timing for taking your ovaries out, and has that been more or less helpful or frustrating than the conversations were around um, the possibility of a mastectomy? Uh, it's all frustrating. It I hate all mm -hmm. of the conversations, and it's not the doctor's fault. I just don't want to have to take my body apart and it's not their fault so but they want me to take my body apart and they're not attached to my body so every time I see one I mean I was amb I feel like I was ambushed one time when I went to the regular gynecologist and they're like when we take out your ovaries and I was like I thought I was here for a pap come on right um but yeah. they say that to me every time I see them now when are you taking out your ovaries when are you taking out your ovaries and 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 I don't want to I mean I will Right. I'm actually, uh, to stave them off, I am getting my tubes removed because there's new research out that a lot of the cancer starts in the tubes and this and that. So I thought, okay, I don't want to go through right. menopause right now. I do not have the time or the inclination to go through hot flashes, to lose my ways, to like have to go on hormones. I just, it's, I just got my breasts removed. Give me like a second to breathe. Um, at right. the same time, my my aunt is suffering from stage three ovarian cancer right now, so I know it's real. It's mm. I know why they're pushing for it. Um, right. So I'm taking like a baby step now, and then I will get them removed, hopefully at 45. But again, like if a cyst comes up or whatever, then I'm going to do the whole thing just like I did the the breast mastectomy. Right. Like. One thing that makes them nervous that in turn makes you nervous and then all of a sudden you just like... Yeah, exactly. And, and I don't know when I'm going to... I don't know when I'm going to get my ovaries removed, but I do know that if I do suffer another scare like that, it's it's going to be... I will be upset with myself because that was traumatic for me and I do know that when they catch ovarian cancer, it's too late and I'm, de I'm, de I'm dead, basically. So that sucks. Mm. In thinking about this, before you got tested, did you already think that you were done having children? You already have two twin girls who were nine at the time you were at the article, now ten. Um, or were you were you still thinking of possibly having children in the future? Has that made any of these decisions? Well, when harder? I got tested, they were four, and having another child was on the table, but it wasn't a huge possibility. My it, having twins, I think, kind of regardless of cancer or not cancer having twins kind of dampens your whole view on <laughs> the cherubs that you might have or not have so you know it yeah. was on the table when I found out then there was a whole ethical dilemma of okay well I had two girls identical twins so if one has BRCA mutation the other does as well mm -hmm. um, 
can I, you know, ethically go forward and have children now knowing that I have a huge possibility of passing, you know, a very high risk of cancer down to them? You know, that's a big mm -hmm. burden to place on a baby. Um, so it did. Yeah. Um, however, if I had really wanted another child, I would have done it. Um, you know, I was already mostly in the no column and that just pushed me all the way. Right. And that... I guess when you got when you got tested like 32 33 and your daughters were four if you'd wanted another child that i guess that would have been the time yeah i would have had to really have wanted wanted one though you know because it did it did sway me you know i was kind of on the fence yeah maybe maybe not and then this was like you know what mm -mm. i don't want one enough to put them through that so now your daughters are 10 years old how much do they, uh, how much do you think they understand about this BRCA1 mutation? Um, you know, how was it for them to watch you go through, um, not watch you go through surgery, but the recovery? Um, and like, how have they reacted to all this? It was this? horrifying for them. And it actually really disrupted our family um, thing for a while. So one of them, honestly, mm -hmm. the day I had surgery, she ended up having a panic attack at school. My husband had to leave my side to go and get her because they could not calm her down. Um, and she was so scared. I mean, they both were really scared, but they, they show it in different ways. So the, the scared one that acted scared, acted scared. And she was just, don't die, don't die, don't die, don't die, don't die, don't die. Oh my God, the hospital, mommy, don't die. Like she was like that. And then the other one yeah. was mad, so mad. I was no longer like, I was no longer the mom. I was just a regular trash human being. How dare I be in, you know, how dare I be fallible? Um, so she yeah. was really angry for quite a while. And your, your daughter who was so scared, do you think, was it more that she was scared about the risk of surgeries or is it knowing the cancer in your family has she been close to those family members where it's kind of wrapped up in this fear of cancer no so we have avoided the genetics of it for them right now and i will introduce that to them as they get a little older i'm thinking in the next couple of years or so maybe like 11 12 as they go through kind of their like puberty and body changes anyway i'm going to toss that on top of it um, you know, so that we can kind of gently introduce it to them instead of like, I was just tossed into it, but at least I was an adult. So now that they're younger and, right. and we can't get them tested until they're 18, right? They, they have mm -hmm. bodily autonomy and they are going to have to choose when they're an adult, whether or not they want to be tested. So, um, you know, I can't, they hate uncertainty also. So to have to go and tell them, Hey, maybe you have this too. Maybe you don't. That's going to be kind of rough. So I want to really gently ease them into like, remember how mommy might have had cancer and we took care of it. It's kind of something that happens in our family. So we're going to just keep an eye out on you guys and, you know, make it age appropriate. And as they keep getting older, keep getting more scientific with them and explaining to them what's going on. But for now, this is something that happened to mommy and I didn't include them in it. I figured they had to go through enough at that point. Yeah. And so was there, what was their understanding of the reason you were having surgery done? Did they think it was related to family history or that finding um, that for which you kept going back for so long? Um, they thought it was related to, I mean, I told them it was related to cancer and that it was that I, I could get cancer, um, but I haven't explained like they don't remember that blood test. So, you know, I haven't gone back and be like, remember when mommy got her blood tested and then blah, um, they know that there is something 
in my in my DNA, my blood. They don't really know DNA and genetics yet, you know. So they know there's something mm-hmm. in my blood that makes me more likely to get cancer and that I took care of it. Um, but they haven't really attached that to it could also be in their blood because they're related to me. Right. Which we will. We definitely are going to do that. But they have a lot of time still. Um, so Absolutely. I kind of want to, and you know, with, with the other surgeries I'm going to have to go through and everything, I just, I don't want to bang them with it all at once. I, I want to ease them in to each area. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So having gone through some of this testing a number of years ago, and then more recently the, the mastectomy and thinking of doing an oophorectomy at some point, um, what, what do you see with like your different frustrations with talking with physicians? Is there a way that you can see that physicians or genetic counselors could be communicating about this information with patients that would make it less, uh, less frustrating? That's a tough question because your hands are tied. What can you do? You can't advise patients. I think the best thing would be to help them do the research instead of making us do our research on our own. You know, they say like, Mm -hmm. oh, studies here, studies there, this and that. Well, what would be really helpful are like in between steps, like, you know, in between the study where all the jargon is and the news reports where all of the like overblown and misleading communication is, where's my handout? Where's my pamphlet that says, you know, and, and, and personalize it, right? Because my cancer risk is so high, but a lot of people who even have BRCA1 mutation don't have that high of a risk. You know, I go around right. and I'm a journalist, so I'm writing in all of these articles that I have an 87% chance of breast cancer and scaring the heck out of everyone. But that's... <laughs> that's I mean, that's like that's right. the higher, the very tippy top exactly. end of the range. That and that's quoted. just yeah. mine because they're individualized. So I think what would be really helpful is if doctors or genetic counselors had the time, which they don't, but if they did, to take a chart and apply that chart to the things that you could do, right? To kind of get mm-hmm. permutations of you have this uh, risk of cancer and doing this will alleviate this much of that risk and doing this will alleviate it then and doing all these things at this age and then at this age and then at this age and giving the patients the percentages themselves. You know, I mean, it's a lot of math mm-hmm. that you would have to do for each person. Um, but having to do that math for yourself as a patient and not knowing any of the recent studies, uh, you know, and not knowing uh you know, what these numbers necessarily mean as you're doing it. It's very scary and convoluted. And it's like, it's like you're swimming in cancerous mud trying to figure things out. Yeah, there are, uh, there are some studies, some papers that some genetic counselors will use um, breaking down cancer risk by decade of life that some people find helpful. I wonder if that's something they ever, they ever showed to you. Um, no, but my cancer journey is a little weird because I started with kind of uh, one one hospital system and it was it got so bad that I actually moved over to the bigger hospital system. Um, so some of my stuff got mm-hmm. lost in translation. I wouldn't consider myself necessarily typical. Um, yeah. But I think even if you do, you know, by decade, um, bring in the person's chart and say, this is how it's going to affect you. You know, right. that's the that's the key that's missing. And it seems, I think, to a lot of doctors and to people who work in the industry to be so basic 
and so easy to do, but it's actually one of the hardest things um, to do, not because uh, the average person is, is too ignorant to understand how to do it, but because of the emotional barrier there, because you're talking about you. So if somebody else could mm -hmm. just do that one little thing and say, okay, here's it by decade, here's your risk and your what your blood work said, here's how this affects you, and get to that third point, here's how this affects you, now you make your decision. Yeah, that's so interesting. From I guess from my perspective, that would be a routine part of most genetic counseling, but it's also it's kind of tricky because I think sometimes, you know, there can be miscommunication between like what a breast surgeon is saying to a breast surgeon maybe thinking a genetic counselor is saying something and a genetic counselor thinking the breast surgeon is saying it. And then so like you seem to be very information speaking seeking and you're you know, you're a journalist. Um, and you're used to researching and having evidence and facts and articles and research and uh, and then some patients don't want all of that right. detail. That's um, another big thing. Some people don't want but, it and it's so hard. I mean, I, I, I honestly, I couldn't give you a hard and fast solution because not only all the things that we just discussed, you know, including that uh, surgeons are saying some things and counselors are saying other things. Um, and they're not necessarily communicating because they just don't have the time or the bandwidth to do so for every single patient. Um, also, the research is changing. The two, the studies right. I based my yeah, stuff like on, can, they weren't available. Yeah. When I got tested, those studies <laughs> weren't even in existence. Right. Yeah, it's like we can, you know, it can be personal. There's huge ranges, and then you can personalize to some extent. There's some studies on decade. You can look at your family history, but nobody's going to be able to say your risk is 83.2, and by this point, it's there's still so much uncertainty involved right. in there. I think it's just, it's very hard as a patient, and I know there's no solution to this currently, but it's really hard as a patient mm -hmm. to see all of these different types of doctors and even though our charts are in a centrally located place every doctor has a different goal in mind and a different mission in mind and a different way of framing things in mind so that your idea of what is happening to you and what you have to decide on for yourself is constantly shifting i would say that my meetings with genetic counselors for me personally weren't very helpful um, and that's not a dig at genetic counseling. I think it, it's a very important tool just for me. And that might be based on, you know, being a journalist and, and having the facts at the ready and having a mom who works in healthcare. I mean, my mother works in healthcare. So she, you know, mm -hmm. was doing all this stuff for me as well. So I kind of came in equipped with what I, exactly I wanted from these genetic counselors. And it was something that they couldn't give me, you know, it's right. in in terms of like, yeah, and they ideas. can't, they just can't. <laughs> Yeah. Did your sister also meet with a genetic counselor? Do you know before she had tested? No, my sister got tested. So like if you, the cool thing about being a young person um, is that people don't really take you super seriously, which is a uh, positive in some ways. She got her blood testing done as quickly as I got it done at some sideshow lab. You know, um, so, you know, just uh -huh. boom, boom, done, done. And then we got all, all scared, like, oh, my gosh, maybe because it was so unprofessional, like it's a false negative. But uh, but uh -huh. I don't think so. I, the genetic testing is pretty solid. I actually wanted to be retested just in case. 
And they were like, no, if you're positive, you're positive. We're not retesting you. Yeah, I mean, I'm assuming that you and your sister both provided the laboratories with a copy of your mother's positive test results. So they were, they knew exactly mm-hmm. what to look for. Right. I think that helps a lot too. Like a lot of women are, are, are the first to be doing this. I'm different because I was the second generation to do it. But for many, many women, as this gene mutation becomes more well known, they're, they're, they're going out and having to prove like, look, Get, take a chance on this because this is my family history where, and then, you know, the doctors don't know exactly what to look for. Where in my case, it was, it was all set up like, no, nope, this is where it is. Let's see. I mean, it, it's interesting, uh, you know, hearing you say it'd be nice to have sort of in between information, um, you know, not like the general broad risks, um, but something like a little more personalized, but then also make it easier to have access to, um, uh, research and evidence. Uh, another BRCA1 mutation carrier who I spoke with who went through, you know, her testing and her surgeries quite a while ago um, is actually working right now on an app with her breast surgeon where that's supposed to kind of be the goal. Is to, It's called the Breast Advocate app and to have more of more information centralized. So it's, it's going to be... Um, in, it's not even quite in beta yet. Like now I think people can sign up to be beta testers and users, but it just kind of like when you're talking about that made me wonder whether, you know, to the extent to which that, that resource might may or may not address like the, no, that's exactly right. For. That would, that would help quite a bit because when I, when I went through and I was looking at the studies that I looked at for that piece, um, they were honing in on it. They're not there yet, but they were honing in on a lot of the different factors that, that, carry carry a lot of weight in terms of when you actually should or should not consider getting these surgeries but they mm-hmm. could the, the language was very dense because it's an academic research paper you know and so right to have an actual tool at your fingertips as a consumer that takes into account the science you know that's done with in, in conjunction with the surgeons and the researchers as opposed to you know just the general population like we need this the research end and the consumer end to come together in the middle to provide that mix of that that magic spot where you're getting advice for yourself you are advising yourself through an app yeah so tell me again i'm just really curious about the kinds of reactions you got to your washington post article um you mentioned how colleagues at work reacted but also um did your family know that you were writing about this like how did they feel about being written about and i'm i'm guessing like this is also the sort of situation where then people start telling you their family stories um of cancer when you write something Uh, yes i got many many of those the most touching of which was like a five-page handwritten letter by an old woman who uh, reads the Washington Post print and sent it to the Washington Post, and then they then sent it to me because I'm a freelancer for them um, about her entire history and her life story, um, which was really touching. It was in that like cute um, handwriting, you know, the really nice cursive. <laughs> yeah, it was so cute. The lost um, art. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was really great. Um, and then, honestly, one of the most the oddest conversations I've ever had to have with my mother was about this. She knew I was writing about it because I, I write a lot about my life and she's very private, um, which is very hard when this, when we talk about this topic because she's so ingrained in it. And so I had to, I texted her like, Hey, sorry for the weird question. Uh, but would you, 
would you want your photograph in the Washington Post? Um, all, you know, I'm sorry, I'm so weird. And I'm saying, you know, I'm sorry I have to be like this. And she wrote back like, no, um, thank you for asking. I said, I didn't think you'd be into it, but then I thought, well, let me just I better ask you in case you are into it. And then you're like, why didn't you use my photo? And she's like, no, I definitely don't want my photo in there, but you can use the story. So that's why they went with the Angelina Jolie photo instead. Correct. Yes, that's why they did Angelina, because they wanted a picture of, of, of not only me, but my mother to, to indicate the genetic bond there and my mom was like mm, I think I'll pass Ab- should I, abs- I think Absolutely I'll pass not. on yeah. being in the Washington Post for breast cancer but thanks for the offer Dar like yeah um I mean you'll notice she's not named like I never name her I never use her yeah. name I never use anyone's name honestly if I can avoid it out I'll, I'll mention my daughters you know my my twin daughters I'll mention my husband very rare that I name them unless I've been specifically asked by an editor to do so because I just feel like these stories that I tell are my stories and by naming the people involved I make it their story and their responsibility and I don't want to do that to people. Yeah it's such a tricky thing in genetics where you know you your story is kind of wrapped up in the story of family members and and even testing you know like if your mom hadn't been interested or willing to get testing that would have made your testing so much trickier. Right she she both eased the way for me and you know then had to be the bearer of the bad news. I mean, she took on a lot of responsibility there, which is something she's done her whole life. So. And you said your mother works in healthcare. She does. She's in quality assurance. Okay, so your mom works in healthcare, and you had this extensive family history. And it sounds like she she was knowledgeable enough to seek out this testing for herself. Is that right, or is it something that a doctor brought up with her? No, she she did it. Okay. What is your experience or your impression of? doctors bringing this up with people um, who have a similar family history or maybe a less striking family history but would be appropriate for testing um, and maybe don't know enough to be advocating for themselves to get this testing done? Uh, Based on the amount of it was easy for us because of my mother's connections in the hospital in which she worked and you know she has a lot of gravitas there she's a you know get things done kind of woman so we had a very easy route and then when she was positive my route was very, very easy. Most women who want to get tested come up against a problem I did not come up against, which is that medical professionals don't take them seriously enough. Um, Mm. They, especially because of the Angelina Jolie coming forward thing, assume that women are overreacting. Um, Mm. Nobody has this mutation. They say, you know, only 1% of the general population has it. So why would it be you? You know, and I uh-huh. hear and get a lot of pushback on women wanting to be tested from insurance companies, from doctors. You know, if there's not compelling enough evidence, then they're not going to just, you know, make it easy for you. And to that, I, I would say, and I've written pieces about this too. In fact, I might have touched on it in the Washington Post piece. Um, it's important. Why? Just give the test. Why mm-hmm. not? Because it costs money? Well, is, how much is my life worth? Because if I hadn't right. gotten that test, you know, I'll, you know, I had a very good chance of contracting cancer and going in my early 40s. So, you know, how much money is my life worth, basically? Um, yeah. And I think that's kind of how women have to go into it, because just being a woman in general, our, our medical care is, is, it's harder to be taken seriously. Um, mm-hmm. And then... Um, you know, 
needing a, a test, a blood test, especially when there's been a big news hubbub about it, even though it's been years ago now, you know, you hear these, you have, how many articles have I read about, oh, you know, it's, too, it's been costing the healthcare industry so much money to test all of these women who think they have breast cancer, but they don't. And it's like, that's not what it's about. If it saves some people, then do it. Why not? And, and then, but of course, also um, with the genetic tests at home, opening up that whole medical thing now, maybe it won't be an issue soon. I don't know. The direct to consumer yeah. testing increasing. Well, or sometimes that, um, I mean, depending on the test, but often is not as clinically sound yeah. <laughs> and it opens up another can of worms as to false positives and false negatives. And like you were saying, thousands of, possible mutations in these in BRCA1 and in BRCA2 and sometimes the testing that that they're ordering through direct to consumer testing is not is not comprehensive. Well, what you're going to find is um, if you so, keep telling women not to get tested through a doctor, they are going to do it themselves through that. Yeah. And then what? You know. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting that you've, you know, like heard or felt like so much pushback from uh like women asking their doctors about about testing for this, you know, I tend to, as a genetic counselor, I see patients who, you know, either have self-referred and they've taken the initiative or have been referred on by their doctors. So, you know, it's like the ones I don't see are the ones who like didn't make it over right. <laughs> for whatever reason, um, or were discouraged um, by their doctors or made to feel like their history wasn't significant. Um, well, they chalk I mean, it up most... to like quote unquote hysteria or like a fad, like anybody wants this you know, mm -hmm. or like everybody is just a hypochondriac, but it, it's, it's there, there is a faction of the population for which this is very real. Yeah. You know, and I wish I wasn't part of that, but I am. Right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I, I would say like in, you know, talking with uh, surgeons and oncologists and like different rules I've had, like working for a genetic testing lab, I've talked to a lot of physicians who've been very surprised to hear that this testing is usually covered by insurance, including by Medicaid for patients who meet certain national criteria and are at, you know, moderately high risk to carry one of these mutations. They're just, um, often it seems like they're their assumption was that it's expensive and it's not covered, even though now there is lower cost testing option available too. Right. And the costs are lowering drastically. When I got it done, it was thousands of dollars to have it done. But I was covered because of my history and my mother's positive. Um, but if you look, a lot of insurance companies, at least until Trump Care started being such a thing, um, they got on board because in the long run, it's, uh, it's more cost effective if you even catch one of us here right. at this if you had to, to paying, yeah if you have to test paying for cancer treatment exactly <laughs> if you have to test 20 women and 19 come back without it but one comes back with it then you've saved yourself money because i you know that surgery costs nothing compared to long-term cancer treatment yeah i know one one big frustration for genetic counselors is that medicare does not cover testing for people who've not had a personal history of cancer so you have to wait until you get cancer <laughs> to so be tested ridiculous. if you have <laughs> oh my god yeah that's horrible. I didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah. The insurance, the insurance situation is only going to get more dicey. So I encourage everybody who needs to get tested to get tested right now or don't because once you get tested, we're, we don't know how long Gina is going to hold up we, mm -hmm. and we don't know. Gina being the genetic information non-discrimination. Correct. Act. Already it doesn't hold up for, um, you know, long-term disability in life and different kinds of insurances and they're going to, they're wheedling away at it. So, you know, if you do get tested at this point, you know, maybe you're going to be put into a sick pool. That's one of the reasons I'm getting all this stuff done right now. Mm -hmm. You know, it was my scare, but also like, Hey, 
if I lose my insurance, who's going to cover me now? I'll be in a sick pool. That's it. You yeah. know? No, thanks. Yeah. And I mean, Gina, in principle, uh, I mean, Gina prevents employers and insurance companies from discriminating against people who have a mutation that predisposes to cancer, for instance, among other mm -hmm. things, um, and doesn't protect uh, or provide any protection related to similar discrimination for long-term disability or life insurance policies. But it's interesting you say that. I've also talked to patients who just feel like, well, politically, this is a hard time and things are like so in flux and that they just don't feel reassured by legislation that's in place because they feel like anything could happen. Yeah, I'm trying to get all my stuff taken care of as quickly as possible. And the tubes getting taken out has the added benefit of me not having to worry about whether or not they're going to take away birth control. I mean, I got to protect my own. You know, if, uh, if things are in jeopardy, I want to make sure I got everything on my end as tied up as possible. If you'd like to share your story, send an email to podcast at graygenetics.com. Gray Genetics provides genetic counseling services to patients throughout the U.S. and the world using secure, HIPAA-compliant video conferencing. To book an appointment, visit graygenetics.com. The information contained in this podcast does not constitute medical advice and is also not a substitute for genetic counseling. Neither Gray Genetics nor any of its guests makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast. Evaluation of an individual's personal and family health history is a crucial part of genetic counseling and any recommendations.